BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. Capella University's game-changing FlexPath format helps you learn at your own pace and fit earning a degree into your life. From before you enroll to after you graduate, you'll be supported by people who are invested in your success so you can pursue your goals knowing that help is available if you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Boy, I had a really fun time talking to Polina Pompliano, the author of the new book, Hidden Genius. And she also has this newsletter called The Profile, where she's profiled hundreds or thousands of the most successful people of all time. And she put together a book, an excellent book, Hidden Genius, about all the things she learned. And I wanted to learn them too. So I read the book, but I still had lots of questions. So I called her up. She came on the podcast and she answered my questions about what it takes to unleash your hidden genius. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. I don't know if you can see, like, there's tons of, like, bookmarks throughout the whole thing. Like, Oh, so you've read the whole thing. Oh, of course. I don't have a podcast unless I read the whole book. That's awesome, Jesus. So that means the world. You and like three oh, people have read the whole thing. Can you tell when you're doing an interview, uh, like let's say you're on someone's podcast, can you tell if the podcaster has read your book or not? 100%. Yes. <laughs> it's, it's nuanced questions. And then the ones that haven't um, read like the the chapter names and, and I can tell. <laughs> well, and the other question is, cause this is an interesting thing about interviewing and look, you're an interviewer. You've done lots of interviews for your newsletter over the years. And that's expressed so well in this book, but this it's a big philosophy of interviewing. Like, does it disappoint you if you're on a podcast where the interviewer hasn't read the book? Um, kind of, like I understand some people are just super busy, but to me as somebody who does so much research, I could never not read it before right. um, interviewing someone, but you know, it, it, it's okay. I, I get my points across. <laughs> so I, I was having this discussion the other day with Cal Fussman, who, who used to be really good friends with uh, Larry King when Larry King was still alive. And Larry King, of course, had an interview style where he on purpose never read the book or never knew, you know, never studied up on his interview subject because he wanted to be there yeah. with the audience and be just as curious as the audience. Like, who is this person? Who are you? And, and learn from scratch during the interview. And, and I could see the logic in that too. Like sometimes when I've read the book, my curiosity is different than the listeners. Like I'm kind of jumping three steps ahead. And so sometimes I have to pull back a little and figure out where I am with the subject so that I'm not revealing too much or skipping ahead too much. 
that's, I think that's totally fair. And it's definitely a strategy that some people have. I remember my coworkers in journalism, I would be the person that has to read everything that my subject has done before interviewing them. But a lot of my coworkers were like, I don't want to read anything so that I come at it with fresh eyes. And I think that's what you're kind of getting at here. But yeah, with when you've read the book, you kind of have a little bit more context than the listener. So your questions may be a little bit more in depth. Right. And, and I think, and there's two things there. One is, A, the whole reason I do a podcast is because I want to learn to make my own life better. Mm-hmm. So I might as well read the book. So then when I actually... I'm talking to the subject, in this case, you, if I had questions on what you said in the book, I could learn even more by asking you directly now. What what a pleasure it is for me. Our brains work the same way. (laughs) So, of course, the book is called Hidden Genius, The Secret Ways of Thinking That Power the World's Most Successful People. You really organize the book in an interesting way because like hidden genius, that can mean a lot of things. It can mean, oh, I'm like amazingly creative or I'm like great at math and science. Like those are the, I would say math and art are the two areas that people think of when they think of genius and, and pro and people think of prodigies and youth. How would you describe hidden genius? What does that mean? Absolutely. And I think uh, when I was pitching the name to my publisher, they were a little hesitant exactly because of that. They were like the connotation with the word genius is that it's some sort of like polymath or, you know, like somebody who's um, they've studied this subject and they're, they're a genius at this one thing. And it's sort of like that, but not at all, because it's not the traditional way of thinking about a genius. It's that the way I define it is everybody has a hidden genius. Many of us just simply haven't uh, discovered it yet. But the way I think about it is it could be a small piece of wisdom or something transformational that you know because of all the experiences you've had that led you to discovering that hidden genius. And it could be a skill, piece of wisdom, anything that differentiates you, that differentiator that makes you exceptional. And do you think everybody in the, has in them the seeds yeah. of genius? Yes, 100%. And it's interesting because, you know, there's, there's lots of ways, and you, and you talk about this, about manufacturing genius. Like there's lots of ways to kind of bring out the genius inside of you. One thing that was intriguing to me is like towards the end, you talk about identity and, and people's mm-hmm. relationship with their own identity. You mentioned for yourself, you had the, when you were working at, before you started your, excellent, excellent newsletter, The Profile, which I read every issue of. You were working at Fortune Magazine and you kind of identified your identity as someone who works at Fortune Magazine. And Mm -hmm. was it hard for you to quit and then start The Profile newsletter? It was (laughs) because status is an addicting thing. And I think a lot of us, when we get a taste of some sort of status, in many cases, a job title, we get addicted to that feeling that it gives us when we walk into a room and we can say, I'm a reporter and editor at Fortune magazine. It, like Immediately you get some respect. People are like, ooh, I wonder what she does. That kind of thing. I knew that I was going down a dangerous path because this was something that something external that I had tied my identity around that could be taken from me. I could always get laid off. I could get fired. I could lose my job for whatever reason. And suddenly I am no longer 
reporter and editor of Fortune Magazine. So in 2017, when I started the profile, I was like, this one thing is just something that I do solely for myself. I didn't start it with the idea of like, how is this going to make money? Is this going to be a business? Am I one day going to quit my job for it? But of course, you know, it kind of organically evolved into that. And then in 2020, when I was making the decision to leave Fortune and my full-time job for this newsletter, I was terrified because I was like, okay, so so suddenly my email is not going to have paulina at fortune.com. It's now going to be at readtheprofile.com. Are people going to be as willing to engage with me if that status symbol is in there? And what did you find? Absolutely, they were. <laughs> so I found that the, the biggest lesson I learned from that is relationships don't evaporate if you've done it the right way. As a reporter, I always made sure not to like burn people. I always gave them a a chance to explain a quote that maybe where they misspoke. I I wasn't like, ooh, yeah, that's going to bury them. Like, let's put that in there. So I think people earn, I, I earned people's trust and they learned that they could trust me over time. So, you know, when I emailed Melinda Gates' people after I had interviewed her at Fortune, Maybe they said no to an interview with the profile, but they always answered my email. So I think like, regardless of what you do, the relationship aspect of it is the most important part. It's really true. Like it reminds me of, so I had a similar experience as you. I was working at, this was in the 90s, so a long time ago. I was working at HBO and I left to start my first company or, or actually just like you, I had already started it, but I finally felt the need to do it full time. And I remember my boss was really disappointed when I told him I I was leaving. And he said, no one's ever going to return your calls again because you won't be James Altucher from HBO, which I really did tie my identity to. And and he was right in the sense that people who would have returned my calls because I was at, at HBO, they did not return my calls. But people who over the years I had just gone that extra length for and given to, they returned my calls. And then it made me, it changed my identity, realizing who was responding to me. It, it, you know, it made me become more of me, like the, yes. the, the positive attributes of me, because that, you know, contributed to my success as opposed to being James at HBO. I had to drop the HBO part and become more of me. And learn who you are. <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, you bring that up when you do, you, um, you know, throughout this book, you're taking snippets from the various profiles you've done over the years and and it's contributing to the different chapters. But you talk about Matthew McConaughey and what he said about identity. And and it was very fascinating what he said, which was have an identity elimination diet. And and I was trying to figure out like what that would mean for me. Like basically he was saying, if you associate yourself like Matthew McConaughey, the actor, what does it mean to eliminate that from your identity? It's a tricky thing. Like, like, if you were doing an identity elimination diet right now, what would you eliminate? Well, and and that's that's what's so fascinating is like when I graduated from college. Um, so that that this is when it all started. When I was in college, I had completely tied my identity around titles and what I in, in perceptions. So in college, I was um, the editor in chief of my college paper. I was an intern at CNN and USA Today. Like I had done all these things. So then when I graduated and I got zero job offers, I was like, oh my god, who am I? And that was the ultimate. Like I had nothing else. I was living 
at home in Atlanta on my mom's couch. I was the cliche. Are you from Atlanta? Um, yeah, it's great. <laughs> um, but but it's just that like I, I I had no identity, so I had to build it up again. And I think that that experience taught me for the rest of my life never attach your identity to something external. And honestly, when people ask me what I do now, I really struggle with it because. I I mean, I write, but that's like an action. It's not who I am. Um, I'm also a mother. I'm also an entrepreneur. I'm also like all these things. So I can't really pin it down. I'm just Paulina. And I think like for me, it's the opposite now where it's like, I am myself. I do all these different things and I have all these different interests, but I am not one thing. <laughs> it's again, so I'm going to just plain yeah. devil's advocate to push back and, and please, see if please, there's... Yeah. So, so on the one hand, identity also helps focus what yes. your goals are. So like, you know, there's various definitions of success, like, and you mentioned them later on, like some people say, oh, being a good parent, being a good friend, contributing to the world. But at any given moment, like when you're writing an issue of the profile, at that moment, your definition of success is probably, I'm going to write a really good, successful issue of this newsletter. There's lots of, you know, definitions of success could even change throughout the day. And so uh, having an identity that's dependent on the fact that this is what you do, you're writing this book, Hidden Genius, you're writing the, the profile, that helps with kind of honing in on what's success for you at that moment. Yeah. No, no, no. So, okay. Yes. So here's what I, you know, that, uh, saying strong opinions loosely held. <laughs> uh, no. Oh, okay. It's like a saying like strong opinions, loosely held. You should have strong opinions, but you shouldn't be so attached to them that you cannot like argue the other side or change your mind or whatever. I think the same with like identity, strong identities, but like loosely held. So when for example, yes, I am. When I'm writing the book, I am a writer. I have a goal, like I'm going to get this in before deadline, whatever. But I'm not that attached to this. Like I'm not that attached to being, uh, you know, I don't know. Right now, I work with Fortune and I moderate panels. I'm not that attached to being a moderator and interviewer or whatever. I think with Matthew McConaughey, the elimination diet of identity for him is that he's so attached to being an actor and a movie star. He says that he has to go on this like trip, separate himself from society, and it takes him like two weeks to start being like, oh yeah, like I'm this just a regular person. I am not my job. So I think. It's like, yes, you, you should have identities, but the way I think about it is more have a multitude of identities and don't just like attach yourself so tightly to a singular one. I'm going to take this concept a little further because I feel like a large part of your book actually is about identity. So earlier on in the book, when in the chapter on mental toughness, you yeah. talk about um, assuming an alter identity, an alter ego. So you describe how Beyonce, you know, because she was raised in a very conservative upbringing, sometimes when she's on stage, she has to be Sasha Fierce. Yeah. And Kobe Bryant had to be the black mamba when he was dealing with his legal troubles and, and his basketball career at the same time. And you even you know, spoke to Frank Abagnale, the catch me if you can guy, that he'd have to assume identities and so on to, to play these different roles in his con games and so on. And then you know, also there's the concept of identity and relationships. Like you know, later on in your chapter on relationships, Elon Musk, he, his identity is wrapped up with a little bit with 
what woman is he sleeping next to? <laughs> because he said he couldn't be happy unless he was sleeping right. next to somebody. Otherwise he'd be lonely and that's an identity as well. And so a lot of, a lot of this genius in your book is about giving up on who you maybe previously thought you were or, or who your brain was trying to convince you you were. David Goggins, for instance, had to kind of refer to himself in the third person so that Goggins would be a more intense, you know, quote unquote Goggins would be a more intense version of himself. Yes. Yes, it's totally true. Airbnb has changed my life. If anything, they have made my life so much better. Like I used to live in Airbnbs. I, I lived in over 100 or 200 different Airbnbs over a three-year period, and I loved it. I, loved, I became a really good guest of Airbnbs, and I got to know lots of hosts. So when I initially owned a house, I, of course, the first thing I thought was I'm going to turn my house into an Airbnb because I travel a lot. So why leave my house unused when I can make a side income by letting others Airbnb my house or come to stay in my house as guests and having my own Airbnb or, or being a host for Airbnb has allowed me to do just that. And I've met other hosts. I've actually spoken at Airbnb's host conference. I think it was in 2017. I met so many just nice hosts. It's a great community. And I love, you know, turning my own home into an Airbnb. Like I'm traveling to Austin next month. My home's going to be an Airbnb while I'm away. And I'll stay in an Airbnb. I'd rather stay in like a three-story house Airbnb than in one tiny hotel room in, in the middle of Austin during South by Southwest. So listen, while you're away, your home could be an Airbnb. Many people host on Airbnb, but there are people who are just letting their house sit empty, who've never thought about it or didn't realize their space could be an Airbnb. Hosting can easily fit into your lifestyle and is a great way to earn some extra money. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, then you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Daylight savings time is starting up again. Okay, podcast is over. That's all you needed to know. But why do we have uh, daylight savings time? Answer, to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting your clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day that initial, when we initially start daylight savings. But if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There's only one way to do that, ZipRecruiter. And right now you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to find qualified candidates for you. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100 plus job sites so you reach more of the right people. This is such a brilliant idea for a business and ZipRecruiter did it. So ZipRecruiter's smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. I've used ZipRecruiter particularly as a potential employee and I still to this day get messages every day. James Aldacher, would you like to apply to be VP of en entertainment at NBC or whatever? So there's just nonstop emails. Like I got five or six emails today because of because a year ago I signed up for ZipRecruiter. 
So spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Okay. So, okay. You have clearly read the book <laughs> because this is a theme that I, I I don't think anybody has picked up on yet until just now. But if you look through, through the whole book, there's kind of an undercurrent of playing with perspective, which in turn becomes playing with identity. And there's a chapter on how like you're the unreliable narrator of your own life mm-hmm. and how maybe sometimes to give yourself distance from a problem, you should try to write about the problem from as if you're like a third party looking on the outside or a different um, character in your life. So it's like, I I like playing with perspective and playing with identity because none of us are like this, this solid, rigid thing. It's like you're constantly evolving. If I asked you right now, like, are you the James of today? Is that your real identity? Or is your real identity from five years ago? Or is your real identity who you're going to be from 10 years from now? It's just like, we're constantly like morphing into these different things. And it gives you confidence that the person you are today is not who you have to be in the future. That's the alter ego effect. David Goggins was unhappy with who he was when he looked in the mirror. So he was like, I'm going to become Goggins. Like, this aspirational self, this idealized version of me. And I'm going to start acting today like this aspirational self. Um, He says, he likes to say that he was built, not born. So I just, I hate the idea that we're static and we're born into this one identity and we cannot be other things. So that's, that's kind of like why there's so many kind of contradictions and maybe it's different here and there, but it's like the whole point is that identity morphs and and you can be an active participant in that process. Right. And by doing that, it allows you to unlock. And and I think this is kind of your conclusion in the book. Uh, I mean, not the only conclusion, but kind of where all of this discussion is, is aiming towards is that by having this constantly changing identity and, and being able to be creative about your definition of identity and by eliminating kind of things you've attached yourself too much to, this is how <laughs> genius is unlocked. So you describe the the chef from Alinea, um, I forget his name now. Um, Ackett's, yeah. Yeah, so as he was losing his sense of taste, which reminds me of Beethoven lo- lo- losing his hearing, but yeah. as this world famous chef is losing his sense of taste, he has to change his identity as a chef. He has to kind of systematize in a different way constructing new dishes and that unlocks this amazing creativity. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, the the irony of being one of the most innovative chefs in the nation and losing your sense of taste, making you realize that actually you can manufacture creativity and that taste isn't just your taste buds. Actually, a large portion of taste comes from comes from visual aspects of you looking at the food, but also smelling it. And he realized that and he was able to like become even more creative because of that realization. It's almost like, like take someone like 
the historically famous novelists uh, from last century, Joseph Conrad, mm -hmm. uh, who wrote Lord Jim and Heart of Darkness, or Vladimir Nabokov, who wrote Lolita and The Defense and uh, other books. Both of them, English was their second language. So they had to eliminate their knowledge that they were going to be enormously fluent in the language they were going to be writing in. And, you know, they both wrote works that were that in English, even though English was not their first language. And these books that they wrote, because they had a limited set of tools, they weren't as fluent as other speakers, that unlocked their creativity in this interesting way. Yeah, isn't that interesting how, like, constraint can unlock creativity? I often think about, so I've loved writing my whole life. So when we moved to the U.S., I obviously didn't speak English, but we had this class in fourth grade where as class was beginning, we had a journal and every day there was a prompt on the board and you just have to like journal on the prompt. Um, <laughs> but with my limited English, I like was constantly in my brain searching for words that didn't intuitively come. But I think because I spent so much time in my head searching for words and rearranging sentences and trying to figure it out, I think that that helped me become a more original writer than if English had been my native language. Yeah, I, I definitely think that's true. I also wonder if in this book, you also mentioned we often become the words we use. And so every language has its own peculiarities, like its own ways of expressing things and its own metaphors and analogies that people use to describe you know, certain events and, and, and objects and so on. And I wonder if bringing the metaphors of one language into your new language also makes you think in a in a different way, in a more almost poetic way in that language when you're writing in that language, the, the new language. Yes. And I've actually written about this before a few years ago. I was thinking about how when I speak in Bulgarian and when I spend some time in Bulgaria, I feel like I'm more logical and less emotional. And I'm like, mm. why is that? Is that like the, the nature of the language or is it the culture? It could be a mix. But then I thought about in English how much of the time when I talk, I start my sentences with, I feel like, instead of I think or I believe or something like that. And I feel like is a very, that's emotional language. It's about feelings, it's about emotions, and it probably unlocks a different part of your brain when you're talking. So it's really interesting to think about how speaking in different languages could alter or bring out different sides of your personality. Well, so wait, in, in Bulgarian, uh, I don't know what language I actually spoken in Bulgaria. Is it Bulgarian? Yeah, <laughs> it is. <laughs> In Bulgarian, do they not say "I feel"? Do they more say "I think"? Yeah, or it's just it's just more direct. Um, yeah, and usually it's yeah, I think. If if you're talking about something, it's like I think this, I believe this, but it's like much more to the point instead of "I feel like sometimes," and you know, <laughs> it's less meaning. I wonder. I I think that's kind of true for most of Eastern Europe. Actually, is that it's very they're very direct, they're very blunt, and I wonder if not being so direct, not being so blunt is a luxury of being American. But related to language, though, you also have the way you form these chapters is a roadmap of how what you think of as genius. And mm -hmm. I like how your chapter on the importance of storytelling and, and learning how to be a good storyteller, because it doesn't matter how smart you are, it doesn't matter what you're a genius in. If you don't have an ability to convey your ideas and thoughts, then and it's, it's all worthless. And so storytelling is the way to convey something. You can't just list a bunch of facts and people will remember. You have to convey through storytelling. And it seemed like 
you quote many different storytellers and it's all amazing stories and profiles. But I like this concept of but, except, mm-hmm. and then. Like, do you want to describe that? Yeah. So um, so Aaron Sorkin, uh, who wrote The Social Network, he talks about to tell a compelling narrative, you need conflict and intent. So what is the conflict and what is the protagonist willing to do to get what he wants? And he's like, I don't care if it's like he wants to get to California, he wants to get the girl, he wants to get whatever, but like, how is he going to get there? And even better, if then he wants it, he must need it. And it's just like, I mean, his stories are brilliant because there's usually the protagonist has many different um, paths to where he could go, but there's always conflict. There's always some sort of, I need to get there, like a, like a, a maniacal desire to get to an outcome. Uh, and that's what makes it so compelling. He's like, you don't have a story unless you have but, except, and conflict. And so, so okay, let's look at the social network. So Mark Zuckerberg wants to create, you know, a trillion dollar company, social, you know, the biggest social network in the world. But there are two different groups suing him for, based on the origin of the whole thing, except they might be wrong. <laughs> And right. that's what the movie, you know, kind of, you know, and then these things happen yes. um, to kind of push those two, you know, the, the butts and the accepts or, um, okay, let's pretend we're writing like a romance novel. Okay. So somebody wants to meet the love of her life, but I don't know, at her job is some, the main person she deals with is she just really doesn't like except he might have some hidden charms that she's starting to fall for. (laughs) And then they're thrown into a situation where they have to work together closely and blah, blah, blah. Exactly. And also, also, um, in parallel to this conflict and intent, Aaron Sorkin also really, um, he says that he's not interested in an ultimate truth. He's interested in conflicting narratives that may all be true. He was like, you know, with the social network, there are three different versions of the truth according to three different perspectives. So it's like, it's um, he knows that his viewer is intelligent enough to pick up on that and decide for themselves what they think, but he's never he never beats you over the head with, this is how it is. This is the only ultimate source of truth. And I love that as a storyteller. Yeah, and you mentioned a quote, I I'm, maybe it was Aaron Sorkin who said it, or maybe it was someone else. You mentioned a quote, there's three versions. There's always three versions of the truth. Your truth, my truth, and the truth. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, yeah, there's always three sides to the truth. Yours, mine, and and the truth. <laughs> and and I like that. And this is why this is why I think this book is important because I feel like as a society almost we're 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 we have this sickness where and and I'm an optimistic person, so I'm not saying this sickness is is incurable, but the sickness is, is that we as a nation have been, you know, everybody has been sort of caught in these identity traps. Like, yes. oh, I'm a Republican. I'm a Democrat. I'm a MAGA. I'm a woke, uh, you know, and it's like we have this menu of identities. And once we pick something off that menu, we have to subscribe to everything yes. that is in that identity. And, you know, like an example being like someone who's a Republican may feel like they have to be both for lower taxes and pro-life, even though those two issues have nothing to do with each other. 
but you fall into this identity trap. You have to pick all of it now if you're going to be that identity. And so that's one illness. The other is, I think, you know, this whole idea that we've had these past few years of fake news or misinformation, it kind of assumes there's only one truth. And the reality is, like you said, there's there's multiple truths depending on context and, you know, who you are and what you believe and your background and, and so on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that's probably one of the reasons that I'm so obsessed with the idea of identity because I've never been a person who could subscribe to one truth <laughs> or one sort of identity and stick with it. I find just contradictions amazing, but I find them all the time it, within myself and within others. Um, but I think it has to do with the fact that we're immigrants. I came to the United States from Bulgaria. We lived in Georgia, which is notoriously conservative, conservative ideals, values, whatever. And then I moved to New York City, which is the opposite of that. And I've seen so many different perspectives and I've lived so many different perspectives that like, I don't just see the world through one set of eyes. I'm like, I kind of get why these people believe that. And I kind of get why these people believe that. So it's really fascinating to me to see these like culture wars in that people cannot be empathetic for one second. It blows my mind. I know. And it's really disturbing when I see people say, basically imply they wish someone else was dead right? because of something they believe. Like, I, you know, I, all the time people say, oh, this person and that person is usually some anonymous stranger to them, you know, should just die because of what they believe or think, which is so ridiculous because all, all of this, all of these beliefs are so temporary. It, it just, it's just the nature of like a news cycle. Everything's so, so temporary. Facts are basically temporary right now. Yeah. And, you know, and, and the other thing is, is that having too focused an identity, you know, in addition to not, to preventing you from finding your hidden genius, is often a source of misery. Like you were saying, you were at Fortune magazine. What if you had gotten fired? If yeah. you identified too much with being, a, you know, a reporter from this big famous magazine, you would have been depressed. Yes. <laughs> Which is why you see so many Fortune 500 CEOs who suddenly lose their job as CEO and they've identified that way for so long that they usually have some sort of crisis. Um, I was reading this book uh, Oprah wrote and she said something like, don't, don't ever attach your identity to something you can lose in the blink of a board meeting. And I think a lot of people do that, unfortunately. Look, and Oprah speaking from personal experience. Like when she had her first struggles, you know, with holding down, she knew she was talented, but you know, sometimes people didn't want to give her the benefit of the doubt and let her, you know, run a show and and so on. Yeah. So she had her own initial early struggles. And it reminds me of like the first time I sold a company, made some money. uh, I identified so much as the kind of person who made a lot of money and had a lot of money that when I lost that money, it was of course you get depressed no matter what when you lose a lot of money, but it just, it hit me to the core of my identity. Like I, I really felt worthless. Yeah. Because that's, that's how you saw yourself. And suddenly that perception had to change. Yeah. And so, but, but I think these techniques you describe in the book for kind of unlocking genius are ways to get out of the identity trap or to get out of depression or, you know, or, or, or to cure yourself of loneliness, for instance, which interestingly, you have a chapter about loneliness in a book about 
genius. And I want to go through some of the questions you, you say at the very end that people should ask themselves, like the chef, Ashats, who the guy who built Alinea, who lost a sense of taste. He says, what is the biggest, boldest, most original endeavor you can conceive of? Yeah. And that that's an interesting question because, okay, I can conceive of building maybe a time machine, but I'm not going to do that. Well, I guess, okay, I can't, if conceive means actually mean realistically be able to do, then I won't say that. But like, what's the most creative thing you could think of right now that you could do in life? Me? Yeah. Uh, completely disrupt. For, so, so yes. And it could be that when I say like audacious, most bold, original, I mean, given your interests and skills, right? So mm -hmm. for me personally, it would be to completely reinvent what people think when they think of a profile. Because I think like right now, when I say the word profile, a lot of people just think text-based in a magazine, long form about a person. And it's like, how can you completely disrupt that? Because something like Humans of New York, that's a profile, even though it could be a Facebook post, just a picture with a few lines underneath. I think most people think they have original ideas only to find out that it's not that original. It's probably derived of something else. So the reason I asked that question is just like, you have to continue to break it down. Grant, when he was like, oh, I thought I was being original until he kept asking why until he got to the bare bones of in the dining experience. He's like, why do people um, eat with like a fork and a knife? What if... I disrupt that. What if like suddenly there's no forks, there's no knives, there's no plates, there's nothing. Instead, the tablecloth looks like a giant scale painting and suddenly food, um, instead of doing this motion, and right now for those who are listening, I'm taking some sort of utensil and bringing the food to my mouth. Instead of that motion, what if the food floats to you and you eat it with your mouth without your hands? So it's like things like that are what makes you original. It's breaking down the very basic, obvious things we take for granted and, and putting that on its head. Yeah. So so it's interesting you say about how you know you you want to change the definite concept of profile. You that you did that a little bit for me. Well, first off, your newsletter always does that for me. But in this book, you mentioned how um a very kind of like almost the 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 concept of a profile started with Gay Talese's profile, Frank Sinatra, in the, I guess it was the mid 60s, where he could, Sinatra was sick, so he couldn't actually talk to Sinatra. So he ended up interviewing a bunch of people who knew Sinatra and built uh, uh, the profile out of that. And that was fascinating because I recently had an experience where I was trying to get someone on the podcast, and for whatever reason, it didn't work out. But I was talking to so many people, <laughs> I realize now. I missed the opportunity to just talk to those people about the person I was trying to get on the podcast. And that would have been yeah. the podcast about this person is talking to those people about the person. That's that's a beautiful example. That's exactly. And, and the Frank Sinatra piece, the reason it was so innovative and, and he actually ended up pioneering a new form of journalism with it, which is uh, narrative nonfiction, is because it wasn't your straight news article or news profile, it was he used elements of fiction in into a a news 
nonfiction article. Um, and he talked to so many people. And usually nobody would publish a profile without the central figure being interviewed. But he found a way to talk to everybody in his orbit to paint an even better picture than if he had sat down with Frank Sinatra. And and I could see the influence that has had on you because, so for me, for instance, if I want to quote unquote profile someone, which for me at this point means have them on the podcast, yeah. I feel like I have to have them on the podcast. But what you've been able to do so well is, okay, maybe sometimes you interview the person you're profiling, but other times you write about all the things you've learned and 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 from all of your research about a person. And sometimes that can be more valuable actually mm-hmm. than straight interviewing someone. Yeah, absolutely. And it's sometimes that leads to an interview. Um, Robert Hogue, um, who I first only wrote a dossier where I did not interview him. I just studied him. I published that. And then because of that, he saw that I genuinely had done my research and taken key takeaways about his story, he was willing to do an interview. Another time, uh, Dwayne The Rock Johnson, I worked on a dossier on him that never interviewed him. And then he liked it so much, which is like the ultimate compliment. Usually people, if somebody doesn't talk to you um, and they synthesize what you've already done, you might think like, oh, that's not me. They would never know. But like he actually thought it was accurate enough that he shared it with his network. So it's like, Moments like that that you can't plan simply happened because I was curious enough to like learn from these people, which is how I learn anyway. So I'd be doing this anyway. I'm just publishing it for all my readers. <laughs> and again, like getting detached from the idea of what is a profile allows you to unlock your hidden genius, for instance, in terms of writing this newsletter for for the chef detaching himself from what he traditionally thought of as a dining experience allowed him to unlock his creativity. For Aaron Sorkin, detaching himself from the concept of we must tell the truth in a movie, there must be one truth that defines a story, allows him to tell a story from many different perspectives. Yeah, I was going to say, that's so cool. I hadn't I hadn't ever actually thought about it that way. And it's the same way you, you kind of say, imagine even looking at yourself and telling your own narrative from the points of view of other people who know you. And that's very valuable. So like, you know, you have a whole chapter on relationships, which I think is, could be a book by itself about relationships. But whenever you're in an argument, and as you point out what Esther Perel says, you know, an argument has kind of this typical form. Someone raises their voice, someone rolls their eyes, someone storms out or whatever. But you say this one thing where really after, within 10 seconds, of the beginning of an argument, everybody's just trying to formulate what their response is going to be. Yeah. So the only ten, only the first ten seconds of the <laughs> argument is is of any value, and then the rest is just everybody defending themselves. But but again, detaching themselves from the core of this, like you mentioned with Sarah Blakely and Jesse Itzler, how mm-hmm. they'll be in an Sarah said, "Well, there'll be an argument, and Jesse will just stop and like slow dance, take her hand and slow dance with her." And so it's all about kind of this detachment from these decades built ideas that you could unlock creativity, unlock genius and so on. Exactly. Wow. That's so, yeah, that's perfectly put, James. 
By the way, this is probably the problem with reading the book because then <laughs> I can't be astonished as you tell me these things. No, so this, this is I already was astonished because I read the book. <laughs> I love it. As somebody told me recently um, that up until the book is published, it's yours and like you wrote it with one intent. But then once it's out and people are reading it, they'll um, derive their own conclusions and suddenly like it becomes theirs and it's no longer yours. And I kind of like that because the things that you noticed may not be the things that my mom notices when she reads it or may not like, for example, I knew that I wanted perspective to like run through the whole book, but I never actually thought about like detachment is the key to unlocking creativity or relationships or, or anything else. And it's like, that's so true because if you're not if you're detached from what society tells you you have to be or do, then it unlocks this whole uh, world of freedom and, and creativity. Looking for a rewarding, life-changing opportunity that enhances the lives of children in your community? Well, with almost 50 years of experience, Huntington Learning Center is the nation's leading K-12 tutoring and test prep franchise dedicated to shaping brighter futures for both students and franchisees. Huntington is the top revenue-producing supplemental education franchise in the U.S., and their proven system is the key to success for you and your students. The Huntington Advantage includes low startup cost, turnkey systems, dedicated support teams, national and local marketing support, and multiple revenue streams to help you build a life-enriching and profitable business. No education experience needed. In today's environment, the need for tutoring has never been greater. When you become part of Huntington Learning Center, you're filling an urgent need in the growing $5 billion supplemental education industry. To learn more, visit HuntingtonFranchise.com. Make a meaningful difference. Pursue your dreams of business ownership and be a positive force in your community. Don't wait. Visit HuntingtonFranchise.com today. Hey, listen, men's health is important. Men act all cocky and like they don't need anything. But the reality is, as you get older, there's some things you need. And it often feels like we're too busy to take care of our health problems. Like I'd rather do anything than go to the doctor or the dentist or the pharmacy or whatever. But now you don't have to waste your time if you use HIMS. HIMS, H-I-M-S, HIMS is changing men's healthcare by providing simple and convenient access to science-backed treatments for erectile dysfunction, hair loss, weight loss, and more. The entire process is 100% online, so you get a new routine of improving your overall health faster. Jay, you listening to all this? Yes, I'm definitely going to use him for now. Not on. that you need it. You're you're young and healthy. James, I'm 35. You, you're getting there. You might you might need it. Who knows? But if prescribed, your medication ships directly to you for free and indiscreet packaging. No insurance is needed. You can manage your plan on the Hims app track progress, and learn more about your conditions and how to treat them from leading medical experts. Start your free online visit today at hymns.com slash James. Could you imagine that there's a whole section just with my name on it? Hymns.com slash James. That's how, I, how much I am representative 
of the kind of person who needs hymns. That's H-I-M-S dot com slash James for your personalized treatment options. Hymns dot com slash James. Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See hymns.com slash James for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscription plan. I know for myself in both business and say writing, giving up on what my initial goals were yeah. is often the the key to business success or or writing success. If you are trying to create something in your life that you're writing about and you have a certain goal and then you feel like you could write the book after you achieve that goal, perhaps the most creative thing that could happen is not achieving that goal and then writing about that process. Have you heard, do you know Louis Capaldi? Uh, it sounds familiar. I don't, I don't know from where though. Yeah, he's, um, I recently wrote about this. He's a Scottish um, artist and he wrote his first album in 2019 and it, it, it just took off. And uh, he became literally a sensation overnight, an overnight success, if you will. But he, um, he felt, so, so he did that. Every single song was a hit. You, you, I didn't know his name, but I know every single song. Um, and then suddenly he was like, okay, well, I have to write a second album. Oh my God, how am I going to do that? I feel so much pressure. And that pressure became physical for him. He developed um, like an involuntary shoulder shrug as a tick. He got so depressed. He it's just he he basically crumbled under the pressure of having to write a second album and it not being as good as the first one. And he was like, he he was like, it's so funny. I'm more successful than I've ever been, but I've never felt so insecure in my entire life. And it's just like, it's so interesting because I think pressure to do something great a second time, a lot of it is anticipatory. Like you're like, oh my goodness, like how am I going to do this? And you start leaving your destiny in other people's hands almost. He was like, it wasn't until he realized that nobody else could do this for him. It had to be him that writes these songs. And it wasn't until he sat down and kind of released all that and was like, I'm just going to write for myself. He had to consciously do that. And then once he started writing, it reminded him that, oh, wait, I do have the skills and I am good because I wrote, it was me who wrote that first album. So it's like, I, I feel the same way. Like I'm always really nervous before I have to do the thing. But then once I am doing the thing, I'm not nervous at all. <laughs> well, you know, with his case, I, I bet you there's a third dimension, which is he wanted to write, create an album that would be just as successful as the first album. But there's one extra dimension to that, which is that the first album was a success because there was a wide audience that viewed it as a success. Right. So now instead of him just writing for himself or writing for the general world and, and then having it find an audience, he already found an audience. Yes. And so there was this extra pressure. He had to write something that would be, he felt like he had to write something that would be successful for that same audience. Yes. Like I know for myself, when I started writing about all my failures, I developed a big audience around this. Mm. They wanted to see what, what other failures <laughs> I had. And so I felt like this pressure to always write about me failing and me losing money or me yeah. just you know getting depressed or collapsing or whatever. And 
you only have so many things you can write like that. Like, uh, <laughs> and and it took a long time to kind of get over that. I had to keep feeding my audience. The audience it, in your head turns into a monster that you have to keep feeding. And yeah. instead of respecting and loving my audience and 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 trusting myself, I kept creating this monster in my head and and trying to feed it. Can I? I ask you because I'm genuinely curious how other people do it, but how do you, after having so many episodes and you know interviewing so many people, how do you continue to do this craft for yourself and not think about like the expectations of the audience? It's I think it's really hard. Like, and again, I've my main thing was I've I've been a writer. I've written 25 books and I've written a lot about myself and in a narrative nonfiction way and. Uh, I think it's really, really difficult. So the way I tell myself is to, I encourage myself to always say, what's my experiment? What am I experimenting mm-hmm. with here? And I have to have a little bit of fear before I, particularly with writing, before I pu- hit publish on anything, I have to be a little bit afraid yeah. that because of some new experiment I'm doing, the audience will not like me. And I like that, that really drives you know, me publishing something. And with a podcast, like right now, we're having a very kind of conversational sort of interview. Yeah. And I'm a little nervous about that because people sometimes say, oh, you you should just interview. You talk too much. You know, we want to hear the other person. We already heard you. But, you know, there's, all, there's only a small minority that, that criticizes. Like people, in, most people enjoy conversations. They don't want to see just an interview. And because they yeah. learn from, you know, I hope they learn from, everything. So I try experimenting. Like sometimes I try being more conversational. Sometimes I try with the format, like more storytelling focused. Sometimes I'll bring on a bunch of people and we'll just laugh and tell stories as if nobody's listening. And so the the audience feels like a fly on the wall of a interesting or entertaining conversation. You've inspired me for one experiment, which, you know, again, this is related to Gay Talese. He wrote that 5,000 word profile of an obituary columnist, like somebody who nobody knew. And so I think maybe a a one podcast would be, I just tweet on Twitter, a Zoom link, first person who gets on the Zoom, that's who I do the podcast with. Oh, that's cool. I like that. (laughs) I thought of that while reading your book. And so- (laughs) That's awesome. But that's like a scary thing too, right? Because who knows what you get, but what you say in the book is that nobody's boring, just the questions are boring. Mm -hmm. And so- how do you find that you reinvent yourself, you know, in the process? You've written, you know, a thousand of these profile newsletters. Yeah. I recently have started seeking out. In the beginning, it used to be more of like, who do I want to learn from? Like in a more aspirational way, like who do I admire so much that I want to kind of learn their techniques and skills? Now I'm kind of like, I'm very curious about people whose lives I don't necessarily admire or want, but I think there's so much to learn there. Uh, One example is I recently did a dossier on Danielle Steele. She's had a crazy life. Um, And one of the things is that she writes, but her writing is more so of an escape from her life uh, because she lost a child a a long time ago. and, And when he died, she kind of was like, I cannot sit here and and be in reality, basically. So she started working like 
20, 23, no, it's insane. She doesn't leave her desk. And that's why she's been so prolific. I think she's one of the most prolific uh, writers out there and um, publishes book after book. And while the audience gets great pleasure in reading her work, it's the process that I'm like, oh man, I don't, I don't know if I want that life. You know what I mean? Can I ask you, what, what is it about Daniel Steele that you didn't admire at first? I did not admire? Yeah, because you said you took someone so, you didn't yeah. admire. So what I did not admire is the escapism aspect of I'm going to work myself to death. I think she says that like she doesn't even sleep in her bed. She'll just write and then sleep on the floor and then go back to writing. It's, it's, it's absurd, her process. So it's like, that's not what I want. I don't want to be that deep in my work that I have no life or time for reality. But I, I could only learn that by reading about her life and then kind of synthesizing it and realizing also that I do the same thing. I have a tendency to be like Danielle Steele. <laughs> when I am, when there's something dark in my life or I'm really stressed about something or worried about something and I don't want to think about it, I do my best work. It's really ironic and stupid, but that's how it is. And I know that if there's something going on in my life, I will sit down and I will focus so a hundred percent to not allow these other thoughts that like I end up doing really good work. Um, and so, yes, like it's easy to fall into that spiral, but it's like recognizing myself in that and be like, I don't want to be like that. Well, I think that's a real valuable technique actually for unlocking genius is to kind of take the things that for some reason your, your instinct is to not like this person or this idea or whatever and a questioning why is it i don't like this and because in this case it might be because you were scared of finding it in yourself yeah uh this this like that. you know capacity to do infinite amount of work to at the while ignoring everything else but but also there's plenty to learn from the success mm -hmm. of people we don't admire like like for instance take el james the author of 50 shades of gray and yeah. i just think of her because it reminds me of daniel Steele a little bit yeah um Fifty Shades of Grey, if you read it, it just seems like a horribly written book. It's just like <laughs> the worst. You can't read more than two pages and you just think this is like the worst writer on the planet. But then when you study her story and, and you study the process by which this became the most successful book of all time, you have to question yourself, A, it's a successful yeah. book of all time for a reason, and B, what did she do that was different, that that catapulted it to success, and that's worthy of studying. That, and exactly. It, you know, Describe Charlie Munger's invert that you talk about in the book. Uh, yeah. So he says, basically, a lot of times, instead of solving our problems going forward, we should flip them and try to solve them going backwards. And he says that instead of trying to be additive, a lot of times uh, you flip it and you go in reverse. And it's like, for example, if you are like, how can I improve my marriage? It may be more valuable to say, what bad habits can I stop doing instead of what else can I do to be a more valuable partner? It's actually, you can have a greater effect taking the inverse and, and being uh, subtracting all these things instead of adding. So what's a, what's a, you know, it's interesting that, you know, you used a relationship example with invert. Like the way I think of his invert is, take an opinion you have yeah. and argue the exact opposite side so strongly that that's how 
somebody should argue against you to, exactly. you know, so like if you're, if you're pro-choice or if you're pro-life, take the other side and argue it so well that, you know, how would you argue the other side as passionately as you argue the side you're on? And that's, that's the real way to, to come up with, you know, see both sides of something. Exactly. But it's interesting that you took the relationship angle on that, like looking at your habits or your things you do in a relationship. And instead of thinking what you can improve, think about what you could eliminate. I'll have to, this inverts my idea of invert. <laughs> well, no, I mean, that's one example. And his example of the beliefs is that that's how he says he is wary of becoming a slave to his beliefs. So to not do that, he never shares a belief unless he can argue the opposite side as yeah. well as the people on that side. It's really that one principle has helped me so much. Yeah. Not only in being like tolerant of people who disagree with me and then really kind of, you know, figuring out why they disagree with me, but also it just allows me for better or for worse, not to get engaged into the whole, you know, back and forth that's been going on in this country for, for the past decade about all these issues that really have two sides. Uh, more than two. They have like 18 sides. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's interesting. Like you, you, like I'm sure I agree. Uh, you and I have the same thoughts and beliefs on guns and gun control. But you have a, a story in the book where you're sitting down next to somebody who okay. you you misheard that you thought they were from the NRA, and then they were asking you all sorts of questions. They were very nice to you. They they seemed really smart, and you found it wasn't NRA. It was David Stern from the NBA, <laughs> who had basically like recreated like you know basketball is you know, to what it is today. But what if he had been from the NRA? Why would you be so surprised that he was nice to you? <laughs> I don't know. I think, I think a lot of us have these like underlying beliefs or, or even judgments based on what people look like. And to me, it wasn't that he wouldn't be nice. It was more like, oh, you know, he looks exactly like how I would have thought the the whatever person of the NRA is uh, instead of the commissioner of the NBA. Um, but but I think it, it taught. So so after that, I, I watched this TED talk with all these people who looked completely different. One of them had a tattoo on his face. The other one um, uh, had a really weird voice, and they were all in a dark room. And in the dark room, they all said what they did. Like, you know, I study meditation and yoga or I, whatever, I'm in, I'm in the NRA. And then the lights come on and they had to guess who it was. And it was just like, it was not the people that you would have guessed. And I think that that speaks to the identity judgment. Like just because your skin color is a certain color does not mean that you haven't had these, you know, awful, awful experiences that you've had to overcome or whatever. But I think right now, especially on the internet, it's really easy to judge other people um, superficially without getting to know them. And that's really what's like, that's a really separating energy. Yeah, I agree. I mean, it's hard to control your own bias. Like, yeah. do you think, and this is a hard thing to, to really say or talk about, but do you find any, that you have any bias against any kind of cultural group or ethnic group or political group? Like, is there anything where it's really hard for you to control your, your bias against a particular group? No, <laughs> I just, I don't know. I, I know so many. So no, <laughs> like I have so many different types of friends and people that I grew up with that 
like when we moved to the US, we in Atlanta, we lived in a really, really bad, quote unquote, bad area uh, that a lot of people would consider a bad area. But to me, those people were actually the down to earth, like real people (laughs) that I see myself like. So in a way, like I've always felt like an outsider, whether it's when we first moved here and I didn't speak the language or later when I moved to New York City uh, and I had no money, but like all my friends were working in finance, I felt like an outsider. Or even now when I go back to Bulgaria, you would think that that's where I feel, feel most like an insider. But again, actually, I feel like an outsider because I've grown up in the US. So it's like, I, I never look at people and I'm like, oh, you, you don't know what life's all about or something. And that's why actually in the book, and we talked about it on our last podcast that we did together, but my favorite interview and dossier that I've ever done to the point where I included him in the book is Robert Hogue. He was born with a deformity on his face, a giant tumor on the center of his face uh, that moved his eyes apart, his nose, everything, to the point where his mom didn't want to take him home because he, she was like, oh, my baby is quote-unquote ugly and he will have a really hard life. He'll make life hard on us and his siblings. He dealt with so much stuff as a kid, being called names and bullied and all this stuff, that he took the word ugly and he reframed it. And he was like, what I've learned in growing up, you know, and always being an outsider is that beauty is subjective. Therefore, I'm okay being ugly because I've lived a beautiful life. And it's just like, that's how I think about it. I'm not, I I find that the people who are not perfect and who are, flawed in some way that society would deem flawed, those are the most interesting people to me. Yeah. And I think entertainment, I think it was Carrie Fisher who said, no one wants to read a book about, you know, rich, beautiful people who succeeded everything. (laughs) Like it's the flaws that create entertainment also because they create the buts and the exceptions. And it's also what we relate to, I think, most than perfection. Yeah. I mean, what's the, what's the, there's a Japanese word for finding beauty in the imperfection and in small imperfections. I forget what the word is, but there's a whole kind of like a whole art form revolves around it, which is to kind of even create imperfections in your art to make it even better. Wabi Sabi is the view or thought of finding beauty in every aspect of imperfection in nature. Oh, that's That's it. I didn't know that. So I want to I want to go over some more of the the questions at the very end. Yeah. um, Because these are sort of your, your, you know, questions that for you drive hidden genius. This is a relationship one, but it's, it's something I've never really thought of as asking myself, this is a question at, at yeah. the end of the day. How many positive interactions have you and your partner had today? And I think that's really good because then you live the day knowing you're going to ask yourself that at the end of the day. And as you point out in the book, kind of your perspective on life and, and yourself is often depends on your, your closest relationship. Absolutely. And in another undercurrent in the book is that I want people to realize that the extraordinary is actually found in the mundane. Um, the way I think about this is, you know how throughout life we seek out all these extraordinary moments, but then when like a close person to us dies, we're like, man, I would give anything to hear, you know, the fridge slam again or something like that used to annoy me, but now I would give anything to hear that one more time. And I think it's like that exact example, that question, uh, what positive interactions have you had today? 
John Gottman, who's a psychologist and, and he's a couples therapist, he talks about how he measures relationship quality based on whether on the five to one ratio. Have you had five positive interactions to every negative? And if so, you'll be totally fine. And that's because he measures those um, interactions as the mundane things we do throughout the day. It's not like, did you buy your spouse flowers today or some grand gesture? It's more like when they were talking to you, did you put your phone down and actually listen? Like, those tiny moments that show respect and acknowledgement to the other person, those are the things that he's saying like five to one, five positive interactions for every negative. Where do you think that ratio also applies? Like, let's say you have some other sort of negative experience. Like, let's say you get a call and you have some bad news. Like, oh, uh, let's say you wanted one of your your articles to appear in a magazine and they call you and say, oh, it's not going to appear today. So, so you're disappointed. And do you think you can have five other positive experiences to balance that negative? Or like, would you seek out five other positive experiences? I think when you said that to me, it's like, I would seek out five other opportunities to make it successful or put it, get in another magazine that I may not have if I didn't receive that call. That's a great technique. I'm going to start using that. <laughs> uh, what I used to do when I was like 20 years ago, I was a day trader and I would sometimes, of course, have a day where I lost money. Yeah. And then I would try to diversify my experiences that day. So maybe I would play a game of cards and try to win or mm -hmm. hang out with my kids and have that be positive. Although that was hard after losing money. It's hard to then hang out with anybody. But uh, I would try to diversify the status ladder I was on in some sense so that losing money didn't like make me feel horrible. And I think it was like, it was like a five to one sort of thing where I needed five other good things to balance that one negative thing. Exactly. And they don't have to be like big grand things. It could be, you know, the, the small things like with your kids that is like, you realize what is actually important instead of that one negative. And so here's another question. What is something you can create today that allows you to tie your identity to your name? I'm not actually sure I totally understand that question. Okay. I would love to help. Okay. <laughs> so, Good. well, it's hard to explain it to you because you, you're already doing it. Um, it's called the James Altucher Show. But <laughs> I think <That's> true. <laughs> most people, when they are in a job that they find satisfying. When I was a fortune, I loved my job. It's not like I was like, oh, I hate this. I hate getting out of bed. Like, what? No, I genuinely was excited to go to work. But I didn't have anything that I only did for myself that I truly enjoyed that couldn't be taken away from me. So it's like, what is something that you can create? It could be a hobby or a podcast on the side for your full-time job or something where you're doing it solely because you enjoy it. And I think as we get a little bit further in our careers, we forget that we have other interests other than like consulting or day trading. Like that's probably not what you were born with. Like, damn, I'm, I'm going to be the best day trader in the world. It's like, what are those like interests that are the thread of your life and find one that you can just do on weekends? Or I, I was excited, even though when I was at Fortune at one point, I was writing articles. I was writing a daily newsletter called Term Sheet every single day of the week. And then I was also writing the profile that would publish on Sunday. So Saturdays were the only day I wasn't publishing anything. But even though like I was working very hard at Fortune, 
on the weekends and in the evenings and on the way to work on the subway, I was genuinely excited to work on the profile. So it's like finding something like that, that you tie to your name, that nobody else has anything to do with, that you can't get fired from, that's very meaningful. Well, you know, Paulina, there's so many things that you write about in your book, and I could talk to you for forever about all these things, but what a great book. It's, it's, it's a relatively short book. It's 250 pages, give or take. And there's so many ideas, issues, people, interesting people, fascinating people that you write about. I really loved reading it. It's, it's, uh, again, it's a, it's a, it's a quick read, but I got so much out of it. And, uh, the, the book is hidden genius. It's by Polina Maranova Pompliano. How's, how's, Anthony doing. He's great. Author of a great newsletter on, on crypto. <laughs> yeah, he's great. He's uh he's reading my book as we speak, even though I read it out loud to him when I was writing it. I was like, you have to read the final thing. It's not the same. So that's what he's doing. <laughs> and how's Joe Pompliano, who's uh, author of the newsletter, The Huddle Up. He's also been on the podcast. How's Joe doing? Joe is killing it. He's doing really, really well. Um, he's becoming like one of the leading voices in sports business, which is really cool to see. Yeah, I wonder what that could lead to. There's probably various spokes that could lead from that wheel, that I core. I know, I'm excited. I love that you've had all of us on your podcast. That's incredible. Yeah, the Pompliano family <laughs> is a regular guest on the podcast. So, well, Polina, thanks so much. And thanks for writing this book. Now I'm looking forward to the next book. But yeah, you got to write like 500 more profiles to, to get that. I know, right? And, uh, but thank you again. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you, I loved it. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than a life policy. It's about the promise and the responsibility that comes with being a new parent. Being there day and night and building a plan for tomorrow, today. For the ones you'll always look out for, trust Amica Life Insurance. Amica. Empathy is our best policy.